Chapter Thirteen of Captain Jim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Captain Jim, by Mary Grant Bruce. Chapter Thirteen, The End of a Perfect Day. Are you ready, Nora? Coming, Phil. Half a minute. Hardress in riding kit. Looked into the kitchen where Nora was carrying on a feverish consultation with Miss Delisle. You'll be late, he said warningly. Your father and Geoffrey have gone on. Will I truly? said Nora distractedly. Yes, Miss Delisle, I'll write to the stores about it tonight. Now, what about the fish? Leave the fish to me, said Miss Delisle, laughing. If I can't manage to worry out a fish course without you, I don't deserve to have half my diplomas. Run away. The house won't go to pieces in a single hunting day. Bless you, said Nora thankfully, dragging on her gloves and casting a wild glance about the kitchen for a hunting crop. Oh, there it is. Good-bye. You won't forget that Major Arkwright is only allowed white meat. Oh, run away! I won't forget anything. Well, he only came last night, so I thought you mightn't know," said the apologetic mistress of the house. All right, Phil, I'm truly coming. Goodbye, Mister Lyle. The words floated back as she raced off to the front door, where the horses were fretting impatiently, held by the groom. They jogged down the avenue. Hardress on one of the brown cobs, Nora on brunette, the black pony, her favourite mount. It was a perfect hunting morning, mild and still, with almost a hint of spring warmth in the air. The leafless trees bore faint signs of swelling leaf buds. Here and there, in the grass beside the drive, crocus bells peeped out at them, purple, white, and gold. We'll have daffodils soon, I do believe," Nora said. "Well, I love Australia, but there isn't anything in the world lovelier than your English spring." Ahead of them, as they turned into the road, they could see Mister Linton, looking extraordinarily huge on Killaloo, beside Geoffrey's little figure on Brecon. "This is a great day for Geoff," Hardress said. "Yes." He has been just longing to go to a meet. Of course, he has driven a good many times, but Mrs. Hunt has been a bit nervous about his riding. But he's perfectly safe, and it isn't as if Brecon ever got excited. No, come along, Nora. There's a splendid stretch of grass here. Let's canter. They had agreed upon a Christian name footing some time before. When it seemed that Hardress was likely to be a permanent member of the household, she looked at him now as they cantered along through the dew-wet grass at the side of the road. No one would have guessed at anything wrong with him. He was bronzed and clear-eyed, and sat as easily in the saddle as though he had never been injured. Sometimes, said Nora suddenly, I find myself wondering which of your legs is the shop one. She flushed. I suppose I oughtn't to make personal remarks, but your leg does seem family property. So it is," said Hardress, 
grinning. Anyhow, you couldn't make a nicer personal remark than that one. So I forgive you. But it's all thanks to you people. We couldn't have done anything if you hadn't been determined to get on. Nora answered, As soon as you made up your mind to that, well, you got on. I don't know how you stood me so long, he muttered. Then they caught up to the riders ahead, and were received by Geoffrey with a joyful shout. You were nearly late, Nora, said Mr. Linton. I dragged her from the kitchen, sir, Hardress said. She and Miss Lyle were poring over food. If we get no dinner to-night it will be our fault. If you had the responsibility of feeding fourteen hungry people, you wouldn't make a joke of it, said Nora. It's very solemn, especially when the fishmonger fails you hopelessly. There's always tinned salmon, suggested her father. Tinned salmon, indeed! Nora's voice was scornful. We haven't come yet to giving the tired people dinner out of a tin. However, it's all right. Miss Delisle will work some sort of a miracle. I'm not going to think of housekeeping for a whole day. The meat was four miles away, near a marshy hollow thickly covered with osiers and willows. A wood fringed the marsh, and covered a hill which rose from a little stream beyond it. Here and there was a glimpse of the yellow flame of gorse. There were rolling fields all round, many of them ploughed. It had not yet been made compulsory for every landowner to till a portion of his holding, but English farmers were beginning to awake to the fact that while the German submarine flourished, it would be both prudent and profitable to grow as much food as possible, and the plough had been busy. The gate into the field overlooking the marsh stood open. A few riders were converging towards it from different points. The old days of crowded meats and big fields of riders were gone. Only a few plucky people struggled to keep the hounds going, and to find work for the hunters that had escaped the first requisition of horses for France. The hounds came into view as Mr. Linton's party arrived. The master came first, on a big workman-like grey, a tall woman with a weather-beaten face surmounted by a bowler hat. The hounds trotted meekly after her, one or another pausing now and then to drink at a wayside puddle, before being rebuked for bad manners by a watchful whip. Mrs. Ainsley liked the Lintons. She greeted them pleasantly. "'Nice morning,' she said. "'Congratulations! I hear the boy is a captain.' "'We can't quite realize it,' Nora said, laughing. "'You see, we hardly knew he had grown up.' "'Well, he grew to a good size,' said Mrs. Ainsley, with a smile. "'Hello, Jeff. Are you going to follow today?' "'They won't let me,' said Geoffrey dolefully. "'I know Breakin and I could, but Mother says we're too small.' "'Too bad,' said Mrs. Ainsley.' Never mind, you'll be big pretty soon. A tall old man in knickerbockers greeted her, Squire Brand, 
who owned a famous property a few miles away, and who had the reputation of never missing a meet, although he did not ride. He knew every inch of the country. It was said that he could boast, at the end of a season, that he had, on the whole, seen more of the runs than anyone else except the master. He was a tireless runner, with an extraordinarily long stride, which carried him over fields and ditches, and gave him the advantage of many a shortcut impossible to most people. He knew every hound by name. Some said he knew every fox in the country. And he certainly had an amazing knowledge of the direction a fox was likely to take. Horses, on the other hand, bored him hopelessly. He consented to drive them in the days when motors were not, but merely as a means of getting from place to place. A splendid car with a chauffeur much smarter than his master had just dropped him, a grand figure in weather-beaten Harris tweeds, grasping a heavy stick. "'We should get a good run to-day,' he said. "'Yes, with luck,' Mrs. Ainsley answered. "'Any news from the Colonel?' "'Nothing in particular. Plenty of hard fighting. But he never writes much of that.' He's much more interested in a run he had with a queer scratch pack near their billets. I can't quite gather how it was organised, but it compromised two beagles and a greyhound, and a fox terrier, and a pug. He said they had a very sporting time. Squire Brand chuckled. I don't doubt it, he said. Did he say what they hunted? Anything they could get, apparently. They began with a hare, and then got on to a rabbit, in some mysterious fashion. They finished up with a brisk run in the outskirts of a village, and got a kill. It turned out, this time, to be a cat. Mrs. Ainsley's rather grim features relaxed into a smile. If anyone had told Val two years ago that he would be enthusiastic over a day like that! A few other riders had come up two or three officers from a neighbouring town, a couple of old men, and a sprinkling of girls. Philip Hardress was the only young man in plain clothes, and strangers who did not suspect anything amiss with his leg looked at him curiously. "'Look at that, dear old thing,' he whispered to Nora, indicating a prim maiden lady who had arrived on foot. I know she's aching for a chance to ask me why I'm not in khaki. He grinned delightedly. She's rather like the old lady who met me in the train the other day, and after looking at me sadly for a few minutes said, My dear young man, do you not know that your king and country want you? Phil, what did you say? I said, well, they've got one of my legs and they don't seem to have any use for the remnant. I don't think she believed me, so I invited her to prod it. He chuckled at his grim joke. Three months ago he had shrunk from any mention of his injury as from the lash of a whip. Mrs. Ainsley never wasted time. Two minutes' grace for any laggards, which gave time for the arrival of a stout lady on a weight-carrying cob. And then she moved on, and in a moment the hounds were among the osiers, 
hidden except now and then a waving stern caught the eye. Occasionally there was a brief whimper, and once a young hound gave tongue too soon, and was, presumably, rebuked by his mother, and relapsed into hunting in shamed silence. The osiers proved blank. They drew out and went up the hill into the covert, while the field moved along to be as close as possible, and the followers on foot dodged about feverishly, hoping for luck that would make a fox break their way. Too often the weary lot of the foot contingent is to see nothing whatever after the hounds once enter covert, since the fox is apt to leave it as unobtrusively as possible at the far side, and to take as short a line as he can across country to another refuse. To follow the hounds on foot needs a stout heart and patience surpassing that of Yob. But those on horses know little of the blighting experiences of the foot-plodders, and when Nora went a-hunting everything ceased to exist for her, except the white and black and tan hounds, and the green fields, and brunette under her, as eager as she for the first long drawn-out note from the pack. They moved restlessly back and forth along the hillside, the black pony dancing with impatience at the faintest whimper from an unseen hound. Near them Killaloo set an example of steadiness, but with watchful eyes and pricked ears. Squire Brand came up to them. "'I'd advise you to get up near the far end of the covert,' he said. "'It's almost a certainty that he'll break away there and make a bee-line across the Harley Wood.' I hope he will, for there's less plough there than in the other direction. He hurried off, and Nora permitted Brunette to caper after him. A young officer on a big bay followed their example. Come along, he said to a companion. It's a safe thing to follow old Brand's lead if you want to get away well. Where the covert ended, the hills sloped gently to undulating fields divided by fairly stiff hedges with deep ditches, and occasionally by post and rail fences, more like the jumps that Nora knew in Australia. The going was good and sound, and there was no wire, that terror of the hunter. Nora had always hated wire, either plain or barbed. She held that it found its true level in being used against Germans. Somewhere in a tangle of bracken an old hound spoke sharply. A little thrill ran through her. She saw her father put his pipe in his pocket and pull his hat more firmly down on his forehead, while she held back Brunette, who was dancing wildly. Then came another note, and another, and a long-drawn burst of music from the hounds, and suddenly Nora saw a stealthy russet form with brush sweeping the ground, that stole from the covert and slid down the slope, and after him a leaping wave of brown and white and black, as hounds came bounding from the wood and flung themselves upon the scent, with Mrs. Ainsley close behind. Someone shouted, "'Gone away!' in a voice that went ringing in echoes round the hillside. Brunette bucked airily over the low fence near the covert, 
and Killaloo took it almost in his stride. Then they were racing side by side down the long slope, with a green turf like wet velvet underfoot, and the next hedge seemed rushing to meet them. Over, landing lightly in the next field, before them only the master and whip and the racing hounds, with burning eyes for the little red speck ahead, trailing his brush. "'By Jove, Nora,' said David Linton, "'we're in for a run.' Nora nodded. Speech was beyond her. Only all her being was singing with the utter joy of the ride. Beneath her, Brunette was spurning the turf with dainty hoofs, stretching out in her gallop, yet gathering herself cleverly at her fences, with alert, pricked ears, judging her distance, and landing with never a pack or stumble. The light weight on the pony's back was nothing to her. The delicate touch on her mouth was all she needed to steady her at the jumps. Near Harley Wood, the fox decided regretfully that safety lay elsewhere. The enemy, running silently and surely, were too hot on his track. He crept through a hedge and slipped like a shadow down a ditch, and hounds, jumping out, were at fault for a moment. The slight check gave the rest of the field time to get up. "'That's a great pony,' Nora heard the young officer say. She patted Brunette's arching neck. Then a quick cast of the hounds picked up the scent, and again they were off, but no longer with the fences to themselves, so that it was necessary to be watchful for the cheerful enthusiasts who jumps on top of you, and the prudent sportsman who wobbles all over the field in his gallop, seeking for a gap. Killaloo drew away again. There was no hunter in the countryside to touch him. After him went Brunette, with no notion of permitting her stable companion to lose her in a run like this. A tall hedge faced him, with an awkward take-off from the bank of a ditch. Gilleloo crashed through. Brunette came like a bird in his tracks, Nora's arm across her face to ward off the loose branches. She got through with a tear in her coat landing on stiff plough through which Mrs. Ainsley's grey was struggling painfully. Brunette's light burden was all in her favour here. Nora was first to the gate on the far side, opening it just in time for the master, and thrilling with joy at that magnet's brief, thank you, as she passed through and galloped away. The plough had given the hounds a long lead, but ahead were only green fields, dotted by clumps of trees. Racing ground, firm and springy, the air sang in their ears. The fences seemed as nothing. The good horses took them in racing style, landing with no shock, and galloping on, needing no touch of whip or spur. The old dog-fox was tiring, as well as he might, and yet ahead, he knew, lay sanctuary, in an old quarry where the piled rocks hid a hole where he had lain before, with angry hounds snuffing helplessly around him. He braced his weary limbs for a last effort. The cruel eyes and lolling tongues were very close behind him, but his muscles were steel, and he knew how to save every shortcut that gave him so much as a yard. 
He saw the quarry, just ahead, and snarled his triumph in his untamed heart. Brunette's gallop was faltering a little, and Nora's heart sank. She had never had such a run. It was hard if she could not see it out. When they had led the field the whole way, and while yet Killaloo was going like a galloping machine in front. Then she heard a shout from her father, and saw him point ahead. Water! came to her. She saw the gleam of water, fringed by reeds. Saw Killaloo rise like a deer at it, taking off well on the near side, and landing with many feet to spare. Oh, we can do that, Nora thought. Brunette likes water. She touched the pony with her heel for the first time, and spoke to her. Brunette responded instantly, gathering herself for the jump. Again Nora heard a shout, and was conscious of the feeling of vague irritation that we all know when someone is trying to tell us something we cannot possibly hear. She took the pony at the jump about twenty yards from the place where Killaloo had flown it, nearer and nearer. The water gleamed before her, very close. She felt the pony steady herself for the leap. Then the bank gave way under her heels. There was a moment's struggle and a stupendous splash. Nora's first thought was that the water was extremely cold, then that the weight on her left leg was quite uncomfortable. Brunette half crouched, half lay in the stream, too bewildered to move. Then she sank a little more to one side, and Nora had to grip her mane to keep herself from going under the surface. It seemed an unpleasantly long time before she saw her father's face. Nora, are you hurt? No, I'm not hurt, she said, but I can't get my leg out and Brunette seems to think she wants to stay here. I suppose she finds the mud nice and soft. She tried to smile at his anxious face, but found it not altogether easy. "'We'll get you out,' said David Linton. He tugged at the pony's bridle, and Mrs. Ainsley, arriving presently, came to his assistance, while some of the other riders, coming up behind, encouraged Brunette with shouts and hunting crops. Thus urged, Brunette decided that some further effort was necessary, and made one, a mighty flounder, while Nora rolled off into the water. Half a dozen hands held her at the bank. "'You're sure you're not hurt?' her father asked anxiously. "'I was horribly afraid she'd roll on your leg when she moved.' "'I'm quite all right, only disgustingly wet,' said Nora. Oh, and I missed the finish. Did you ever know such bad luck? Well, you only missed the last fifty yards, said Mrs. Ainsley, pointing to the quarry, from which the whips were dislodging the aggrieved hounds. We finished there, and that old fox is good for another day yet. I give you the brush, if he hadn't decided to keep it himself. Oh, said Nora blushing while her teeth chattered. Wasn't it a beautiful run? It was, but something has got to be done with you, said Mrs. Ainsley firmly. 
"'There's a farmhouse over there, Mr. Linton. "'I know the people, and they'll do anything they can for you. "'Hurry her over and get her wet things off. "'Mrs. Hardy will lend her some clothes.' "'And Norah made a draggled and inglorious exit. "'Mrs. Hardy received her with horrified exclamations "'and offers of all that she had in the house.' so that presently Nora found herself drinking cup after cup of very hot tea, and eating buttered toast with her father, attired in a plaid blouse of green and red in large checks, and a black velvet skirt that had seen better days, with carpet slippers lending a neat finish to a somewhat striking appearance. Without, farmhands rubbed down Killaloo and Brunette in the stable, Mrs. Hardy fluttered in and out, bringing more and yet more toast, until her guests protested vehemently that exhausted nature forbade them to eat another crumb. "'And what is toast?' grumbled Mrs. Hardy. "'And you riding all day in the cold?' She had been grievously disappointed at her visitors refusing bacon and eggs. "'The young lady'll catch her death, sure's fate.' "'Just another cup, miss. "'Lor, who's that coming in at the gate?' "'That proved to be Squire Brand, "'who appeared at the scene of Nora's disaster "'just after her retreat, "'being accused by Mrs. Ainsley "'of employing an aeroplane. "'I came to see if I could be of any use,' he said. "'His eye fell on Nora in Mrs. Hardy's clothes, "'and he said, "'Dear me!' suddenly, and for a moment lost the thread of his remarks. "'You can't let her ride home, Linton. "'My car is here, and if your daughter will let me drive her home, "'I'm sure Mr. Hardy will house her pony until to-morrow. "'You can send a groom over for it. "'I've a spare coat in the car.' "'Yes, thank you, Mrs. Hardy. "'I should like a cup of tea very much.' Now that the excitement of the day was over, Nora was beginning to feel tired enough to be glad to escape the long ride home on a jaded horse. So, with Mrs. Hardy's raiment hidden beneath a gorgeous fur coat, she was presently in the squire's car, slipping through the dusk of the lonely country lanes. The squire liked Jim, and asked questions about him, and to talk of Jim was always the nearest way to Nora's heart. She had exhausted his present, and was as far back in his past as his triumphs in interstate cricket, when they turned in at the Homewood Avenue. "'I'm afraid I've talked an awful lot,' she said, blushing. "'You see, Jim and I are tremendous chums. I often think how lucky I was to have a brother like him, as I had only one.' "'Possibly Jim thinks the same about his sister,' said the old man. He looked at her kindly. There was something very childlike in the small face, half lost in the great fur colour of his coat. At all events, Jim has a good champion, he said. Oh, Jim doesn't need a champion, Nora answered. Everyone likes him, I think. And of course we think there's no one like him. The motor stopped and the squire helped her out. It was too late to come in, he said. He bade her good night and went back to the car. 
Nora looked in the glass in the hall, and decided that her appearance was too striking to be kept to herself. A very battered felt riding-hat surmounted Mrs. Hardy's finery. It bore numerous mud-splashes, some of which had extended to her face. No one was in the hall. It was late, and presumably the tired people were dressing for dinner. She headed for the kitchen, meeting on the way Allenby, who uttered a choking sound and dived into his pantry. Nora chuckled and passed on. Miss Delisle sat near the range, knitting her ever-present muffler. She looked up and caught her breath at the apparition that danced in. Nora, more like a well-dressed scarecrow than anything else, with her grey eyes bright among the mud-splashes. She held up Mrs. Hardy's velvet skirt in each hand, and danced solemnly up the long kitchen, pointing each foot daintily in the gaudy carpet slippers. "'Oh, my goodness!' ejaculated Miss Delisle, and broke into helpless laughter. Nora sat down by the fender, and told the story of her day, with a cheerful interlude when Cathy came in hurriedly, failed to see her until close upon her, and then collapsed. Miss Delisle listened, twinkling. "'Well, you must go and dress,' she said at length. "'It would be only kind to every one if you came down to dinner like that, but I suppose it wouldn't do.' "'It wouldn't be dignified,' said Nora, looking, at the moment, as though dignity were the last thing she cared about. "'Well, I suppose I must go.' She gathered up her skirts and danced out again, pausing at the door to execute a high kick. Then she curtsied demurely to the laughing cook-lady, and fled to her room by a back staircase. She came down a while later, tulped and refreshed, in a dainty blue frock, with a black ribbon in her shining curls. The laughter had not yet died out of her eyes. She was humming one of Jim's school songs as she crossed the hall. Allenby was just turning from the door. A telegram, Miss Nora. Thanks, Allenby. She took it, still smiling. "'I hope it isn't to say anyone is coming to-night,' she said, as she carried it to the light. "'Wouldn't it be lovely if it was to tell us they had leave?' There was no need to specify whom they meant. "'But I'm afraid that's too much to hope just yet.' She tore open the envelope. There was a long silence as she stood there with the paper in her hand. A silence that grew gradually more terrible, while her face turned white. Over and over she read the scrawled words, as if in the vain hope that the thing they told might yet prove only a hideous dream, from which, presently, she might wake. Then, as if very far away, she heard the butler's shaking voice. "'Miss Nora!' Is it bad news? You can send the boy away, she heard herself say, as though it were some other person speaking. There isn't any answer. He has been killed. Not Mr. Jim? Allenby's voice was a wail. Yes, 
she turned from him and walked into the morning-room, shutting the door. In the grate a fire was burning. The leaping light fell on Jim's photograph, standing on a table near. She stared at it, still holding the telegram. Surely it was a dream. She had so often had it before. Surely she would soon wake and laugh at herself. The door was flung open, and her father came in, ruddy and splashed. She remembered afterwards the shape of a mud-splash on his sleeve. It seemed to be curiously important. Nora, what is wrong? She put out her hands to him, then, shaking. Jim had said it was her job to look after him, but she could not help him now, and no words would come. Is it Jim? At the agony of his voice she gave a little choking cry, catching at him blindly. The telegram fluttered to the floor, and David Linton picked it up and read it. He laid the paper on the table and turned to her, holding out his hands silently and she came to him and put her face on his breast, trembling. His arm tightened round her, so they stood, while the time dragged on. He put her into a chair at last, and they looked at each other. They had said no words since that first moment. Well, said David Linton slowly, we knew it might come. And we know that he died like a man, and that he never shirked. Thank God we had him, Nora. And thank God my son died a soldier, not a slacker. End of chapter 13